Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back, folks, to another episode of Big Swinging Stocks. We're back with our Invest Like a Real Human series where we take you into real people's real portfolios, not so you can copy them and not because this is financial advice, but so that we can see how ordinary people make extraordinary decisions about their money. And, well, because we're all a little bit nosy. We're joined this week by Chief Product Officer for Australia's most non-bank bank, UP. UP is an app-only neobank and I think the only bank I've ever seen that has tried to gamify saving. Welcome to the podcast, Anson Parker. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. I'm so excited to have you. I am a bit of a tech nerd, so I do love that you're coming to the show and I want to talk all about your career. But let's start with what was your first like formative memory around investing? The boring technical answer is probably like I am a Kiwi. I grew up in New Zealand and moved to Sydney in my very early 20s where I heard about this thing that they have over here called compulsory super and New Zealand didn't have it at the time. I just thought people got old and got the pension from the government. And so I think that was sort of exciting, this idea that like you're building this nest egg and you could put a bit more into it. But I think that in my early life, I didn't like money at all. You know, like I tried to avoid it as much as possible. I didn't identify as someone who was good at it. So The idea of investing and going to bed thinking about investment was like a really scary thought to me. You know, outside of soup, I really shied away from it for a very long time. I just didn't want my life complicated, I guess, by money because I money was just such a stressful thing for me, you know, at the time. That's a really ironic career journey to then end up as chief product officer of when you boil it down and place people put their money. So tell us what happened. Part of that story is having that empathy and that lived experience that I think is pretty common for people in their early 20s where money is just scary and it's hard to understand and you pretty much make all the mistakes that can be made. But, you know, you grow up, you get older, you your career advances, you start to work stuff out, work out how to mostly pay your bills on time, work out how to pay off your student loan or at least start paying it off. You kind of... I guess go through the school of hard knocks, hopefully, right? Where you eventually start to get there, being in the software industry, not understanding why banking was so difficult and so unfun and so tough to understand. And for me, it just made me want to switch off and never look at it. And up was in some ways all about like, what was the thing I wish I'd had when I was 20 that could have helped me start saving a lot earlier than I did and bringing that outsider perspective to the industry is kind of, I think, what makes up so special. Like we have very few people that come from the finance background. We have a lot of people that come from like software and and media and e-commerce and other spaces. And we obviously work with a lot of people that are bankers and kind of wonks and understand the ins and outs of banking and compliance. But I think that a lot of the vision and the direction comes from this like outsider perspective and a recognition that like a big part of how we can help people is by improving that relationship. Mm. It shows in the brand and just the way comms about the product come out. But in your role as CPO, what's a day in the life for people that maybe have never come into contact with a chief product officer? Yeah, the job description tends to be one of like 
sort of setting that really high level vision and kind of rallying the company, I guess, behind it. Up still a relatively small operation. We're probably now at, I don't know, a bit over a hundred people. But you know, there are other startups where they can just have a hundred just designers or engineers. So like I still work a lot with our product design team. For me, the biggest kick I think I get out of working is the creativity and sort of being involved. And I think that like up is not just trying to be a good bank and just do things well and just build like solid software. Like we want to do all of that stuff, but we really want to challenge how things are and like look for those step change improvements, not just kind of a slightly better execution. And I think that that's like a lot of really hard thinking to do that stuff and a lot of questioning and a lot of discussion. So I think we don't see this kind of just like really simple three to five year future path laid out for us, right? Like we're still being like, hey, this thing we're launching next month might change everything. So we're still kind of making those big bets. We still get to have a lot of fun and have that kind of small company rhythm, like this idea that we're still trying to work this stuff out. And the success we've had today has been awesome, but we're still not where we think we can get to. And like finding that path is really hard, but it's a lot about creativity and thought as much as it is like having the great software engineers and the great designers. To the extent I can really help our team explore what's possible and push beyond and even if we don't end up going there, at least see what things are like outside the box. And maybe they're outside the box for a reason, or maybe the box is just too small and we need to redefine where the boundaries are. And as a challenger brand, you know, the world's your oyster. You guys get to rewrite the rules from that perspective. But you said you didn't like money growing up. You now work in the financial services industry. What about your personal philosophy on investing has changed? I mean, I think that it's still informed by how do I not get stressed out about this stuff? Like, I don't want it to be kind of an adventure sport methodology. And like, you know, I think when the ability to buy like NASDAQ stocks came to Australia through the apps, like that was kind of exciting. I guess in some ways, irony for me is like, I've worked in tech for a long time. And like, when I first started working online and doing web stuff, it was very early internet banking, but people were like, I don't know if this is really going to be a thing. Are people really going to buy stuff online? This is before smartphones. Outsiders, at least the media narrative was like, I don't know if this tech stuff is really going to be a thing, right? Like all this internet thing. And, you know, like I used to use it at Apple Mac when they were just sort of almost dead and like people were like, why are you using that Mac? Use Windows. And so I guess in a way you look back at those important software and technology brands that existed then that are now hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars in market cap. And you kind of think, well, I believed in those companies. Like if I had put my money where my mouth was, then I would have really done well, right? And so I think being part of an industry that is kind of a world-changing industry and transforming our lives and our planet, I think there is something where you want to be able to back that idea because you are sort of believe it. Sort of now, like everyone just believes in tech and there's comedies about startups, which just the idea of that seemed totally bizarre not that long ago. Like it's part of the popular culture and just part of life in a way that it didn't used to be. And so I think backing what you know is maybe something I think that is an interesting idea that attracted me to early investing, like getting into the US stocks that I could never buy before. But by and large, my philosophy is as like be as boring as possible as passive as possible. Yeah, it's fun to like check in things daily and see how they're going. But with the high highs, it's kind of the low lows. And like, do you want to sort of give part of your life to that? Is that kind of a priority for you? Or are there other things you want to focus on? And so for me, it's sort of like, can I make it as boring as possible? Just small, Just consistent. Trundling away in the background. Exactly. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I guess a mix of like values led investing, putting your money behind the causes or the businesses that you're passionate about or think have value, but then also equally not having money be this daily habit. So with that in mind, what was your first investment? You know what? I was probably something like crypto stuff, like really early days. Oh, wow. Early adopter. I didn't get in early enough for like Bitcoin, but the funny thing I got in early on was like Dogecoin, which is like, it was like a joke. It was like the original meme coin. So I had some hundreds of thousands of it. And years later, like Doge blew up and everyone was like, oh, you must be a millionaire. You're going to be driving a Porsche. I like sold it like years earlier, probably like tripled my mega investment. And I'll just send people it because it was just funny. And I think that is kind of the thing with investing, like the regret and like, oh, I should have, I should have done this or that. Yeah. With Hunt, I guess, talk about that exact thing. Like most people starting out struggle to get into it, but a lot of people struggle to get out. And there's this like FOMO of, well, yeah, okay, I'm selling for a profit, but what if I could get more? And someone mentioned like, take out your initial investment. And then if you can stomach it, ride the rest out. Like that's just one strategy. And I kind of like that because you remove the loss and then it's just pure happy returns, right? I mean, there's like an element of gambling to that as well, but it's one potential avenue to look at. So started out with crypto, that is amazing. I don't think I've ever heard someone publicly admit that they were an early adopter of Dogecoin and a pre-Elon Musk devotee. Way before Elon, yeah. But like, what's the investment? Like, what did you most recently buy, for example? Certainly some sort of ETF type of thing nowadays is generally where I go. Like I said, as boring as possible. From my point of view, it's just like such a weird, uncertain time. Like I have a mortgage, my interest rates could seemingly going up every month. That kind of impacts how I think about this stuff too. And, you know, like the returns that I can get from the market versus just like paying off my mortgage a bit faster. And I have three kids somehow. And that is something to think about too. Like a philosophy for me is just to be consistent and boring. Every now and then I'll probably have some fun, just but a very low stake stuff. Because I do think there's a reason why direct investing apps are, are so popular. I think there is an entertainment value to it that people really enjoy being kind of on the roller coaster. And, you know, at times I do too. Well, I think at Self-Worth, we try to think of investing as like a long-term game and you should be doing it for value. But certainly I agree that there is quite a few apps that have taken the different approach and almost casino level gamification of investing. And I think it's interesting to wonder how those apps perform in downturns when the highs are not the highs. But equally, there has to be a level of fun, even like with spending, like if we're just talking about spending, certainly you probably have more money now than you did when you were 19, but the discretionary income's different. You have children, you've got a mortgage, the priorities change and your ability to invest maybe isn't the top priority against paying off your mortgage, kids' school fees, all that kind of stuff. So when you think about your overall portfolio, what's it made up of? From that sort of early introduction to super in Australia, I think I've always like tried to use that to my advantage and put additional stuff into that. And, you know, later in my career, I guess I can put more in. And to me, that gives me a good sense of security because I'm not worried about my own decisions so much. And it's sort of something that is very easy to forget about. And I kind of like that aspect of it. I bought a house like seven or eight years ago in Melbourne and that seemed incredibly expensive at the time, but like 
they just kept going up. And southwest of Melbourne is an area called like the Surf Coast with Torquay and Anglesey and these little beachside communities. Some of them are families that have had a house down there from the 50s have still got it in the family and things like that. And so we're able to get like a small place down there. It's funny, again, we bought it in January 2020, just before everything kind of changed, at least based on what happened to those little seaside towns over the last few years, that's probably the best investment that we've ever made. But we didn't really buy it for that. It was really just like a little shack that we could get away to out of the city. We ended up living there for a year in 2020. And it's insane what's happened to those little areas in terms of the values. We're very fortunate, I think, to have like been able to get into the market at that point. I mean, obviously, kind of the earlier, the better historically in Australia, but that compared to today, that was still early enough. Yeah. Well, as I say, best time to plant a tree yesterday second best time today. So would you say that property is the biggest contributor to an increase in your overall net worth? Is that your best performing asset? For sure. I think at the moment, yeah. Australian property investors rejoice. Anyone purchasing pre-2020 is like, yeah, your index fund could never. In terms of like overall money goals, tell us Like, how close are you in terms of getting to where you want to be? Or do you not really know where you want to go? So I haven't totally worked it out. Like, I do think that I'd be pretty useless without uh, something to do every day. Like, for a while, I think earlier in life, I was like, working sucks. I want to retire as young as possible. I think I'm lucky enough to have a job that I really love and, like, that has incredible challenges. And I think, like, this whole product area in software, like, that didn't exist 10 years ago, really. Like, it's a new thing and it's carving out the creative part of software. Yeah. Imagine making things that are user-friendly. This is so weird. Yeah. But it's kind of just imagining stuff and then people build it. And that's my kind of calling. Like, that's the part I love the most about it. So I think I have probably a good 20 years left of work. And if I can get to a stage that I'm comfortable. I'm not worrying about money. My wife's from America. My, I am from New Zealand. So travel's always been a big part of our life and our lifestyles. Being able to do that, I personally don't need a portfolio of properties or I think I'd be more modest, just something, the ability to, to not worry about money, to support the kids, things like that, and to travel. So financial independence, really, having the investments cover the value. If you want to tell us your net worth, you can, but you can also just tell us how much is your portfolio yielding, like in terms of covering all your expenses, where are you now? I think I'm not really anywhere. That's certainly not really. Dogecoin did not perhaps yield a (laughs) consistent dividend. No, Dogecoin hasn't. But I guess our priority right now is sort of like servicing our mortgage, making sure we're like putting money into super and, and getting our kids through a very expensive stage of life involving childcare and and stuff. So probably like a lot of people maybe at this point, it's a little bit like, let's just kind of survive for the minute, make sure everything's okay. I mean, yeah, I do have two mortgages, so I'm sort of feeling it doubly, I think, what's going on at the moment. So that's the sort of focus for me is, yeah, not wanting to be even more stressed or stretched and just kind of like covering the basics for the moment. Yeah. Fair enough. Knowing what you know now, Would you do anything differently if you were 20 years old today? One of the great, I think, realizations that I could have come to earlier was the importance of like saving and building that discipline, building that muscle. And part of that was having a healthy relationship with money, not kind of being scared of it and kind of having a don't ask, don't tell kind of thing, not wanting to look at a bank balance. But I think I sort of got to a point where 
by about 25, 26, where I made some stupid mistakes with credit cards, like gone to a big hole, sort of finally dug myself out of that, kind of got back to zero. To zero. That's the thing. It's so disappointing. You pay off all that debt and you're like, net worth, not in the minus, but not in the positive either. <laughs> zero. Yeah. I think like at the time, like for me, I've sort of published a blog on this for Upsiders at one point. It was kind of like, ING was pretty early in the market and they had like these crazy rates that no one else was paying at the time without serious strings attached. And like, I was thinking about this a year ago, I'm like, this will never happen again, but it was like 5%. I mean, we'll be seeing that very soon and say it was pretty close already. If you get a thousand dollars, that's still whatever that is, like 50 bucks a year. And so like a CD or something, you know, a couple of CDs, dating myself here. But like, I think the appeal of not 0.5% interest, something that was a bit more tangible, kind of finally got me into it. And began to feel really good about money because I actually started to build a bit of a, a nest egg. But I also got to the point where I was, like, I was in a job I was no longer enjoying. And I realized, hey, I can just quit this job. I have savings. I could take an opportunity to go and work in America because I wasn't too worried. I wasn't paycheck to paycheck. And I knew I could like get a, a house to rent and buy a car and do all that sort of stuff I needed to do. And there's a message around saving, which is kind of like, oh, it's all about buying things or like becoming rich. But I think the more compelling message for me was the freedom to like leave a crappy job or take a chance that maybe you wouldn't have the confidence to without it. And I think that message could be told better to younger people. And certainly like the stuff we do with up to really borrow some of those gamified elements. There's sort of the preachy thing, like you should save, it's really good to do it and it's freedom. And, you know, I can talk about this sort of more philosophical stuff, but if you just make it really fun, like that works too, right? Because customers saving money, like it's good for them, whether they know it or not. And hopefully they'll come to that realization and hopefully they'll start to feel more positive about money as a result of that. It's really nice to see a perspective on saving that isn't preachy for one or paternalistic or patronizing. Like there is this expectation that, oh, you should just know to save. And I don't think that's true. I think a lot of us, you grew up with a sense of money being yucky. Some people just have terrible and quite traumatic experiences with money like divorce or just parents not having enough. And these are really traumatizing things. So I think starting with that base layer and building that muscle before you go to investing, I mean, it's kind of amazing that you have endeavored to make it a mission to make young Australians, the instant gratification generation, safe. Like that's an even impressive feat. I think the other challenge is that when you're young, especially there's, I mean, I think all through life, but particularly when you're a lot young, there's like no shortage of things competing for your money. And there's so many experiences available with friends and travel and I think a lot of the narrative around financial well-being that's sort of printed in media is heroic acts of saving style, like saving every cent you can. Like there's kind of no healthy middle ground in the media often. It's just like you either watch every dollar or you just have no idea what you're doing. And like going to a 22-year-old and saying, you know, forget all the fun stuff. We need to talk about budgeting. I think it's a difficult message to sell. And like, I don't think anyone would go back and say, I wish I hadn't traveled. I wish I'd just saved that money or invested it or, or whatever. Maybe they wish they had invested some money. I think that's a different concept. And so while we're not trying to build a value system about being rich, it's around having a healthy relationship with money. And that includes having fun, going out, traveling, spending, enjoying spending, right? Like the worst thing is the cookie jar style, always feeling a bit guilty. Because it's just, you know, the other toxic side of the same coin. Like if you're super restrictive that's just as bad as being super frivolous with your money because you don't get that sense of enjoyment from either 
Exactly right. And like for a lot of people, neither of those two extremes is ultimately sustainable. I think that you end up with this kind of system where you're living this unsustainably frugal life until something bad happens, you know, like a friend loses their job or something, or there's an unexpected expense or whatever it is, and the whole thing falls over. Because if you're not mentally propping it up every single moment of every single day, there's a sort of a house of cards otherwise. So for us, it's like, how can we make this stuff actually sustainable? That's got to acknowledge that people are human and need to have outlets and fun and a social life. We can't just all be these sort of perfect financial algorithms. Yeah, robots. So what would be your one piece of advice to young Australians or just anyone who might be starting or really early on their financial independence journey? What'd you tell them? Probably goes back to that same thing if I have to boil it down. Like establishing a savings habit is about opening up options for life, not closing them down. Oh, I love that. And so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and all the best with these crippling interest rate rises. I'm right there with you. I'll be all right. I might have painted a bit of a sorry picture, but, you know, first of all, problems and all that. Thanks for having me, Alex. Oh, my pleasure. And to all our listeners, thanks for joining us on Fixing Stocks. We'll see you next week. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes.